Hi folks, today is May 3rd, and if the US Supreme Court is just ripping away rights from women, then this is a special edition of The Delve. I'm sure you've all heard the news of the leaked private vote and draft opinion that will overturn Roe vs. Wade. This leak by Politico is completely unprecedented. Never in the court's 233-year history has a draft opinion been leaked. And while the decision is not final, it appears that Justices Thomas and Alito will join the three Trump-appointed justices, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch, to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, as well as the 1992 Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision that protected women from dealing with undue burdens to accessing an abortion. This decision is not final, and abortions will continue legally until a final decision has been handed down. And it's important to note, abortions will also continue both legally in the states where access is protected, but also illegally in the 20 states where it will automatically be banned, should or when Roe is overturned. This is why Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Baird were placed in the court. This is why old Crow Mitch McConnell stole Obama's Supreme Court nomination in 2016. To achieve this conservative supermajority with the calculated plan to overturn Roe v. Wade. So while this decision is not at all surprising, it is still absolutely devastating. Five out-of-touch unelected appointees should not be allowed to govern the bodies of half of the country in this way and to overturn protections that the vast majority of Americans support. This is not democracy. This is a major blow for bodily autonomy. Once again, it bears repeating that making abortions illegal will not stop women from having abortions. It will just stop women, particularly poor women, from having safe abortions. And I've never met a pro-life person who has actively done anything to help these women to help ensure there's access to medical care while they're pregnant, to help them have access to education and social services. You are not pro-life. You are pro-birth. You can't use the Bible to force birth and be completely satisfied and have no energy to fix a country with the highest maternal mortality rate, no paid maternity leave, no universal subsidized child care, no continued birth parent care, you can't use God to push this cause and then neglect the mother and child afterwards. That's not godly. That's not kind. That's cruel. You're going against the teachings of the Bible. You are making us an absolute backward country. Many people in the South have already been living without their right to abortion protections. Anti-choice advocates have been chipping away at a woman's right to choose for years. Last season, we spoke with Lori Betram Roberts, co-founder of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund and executive director of the Yellow Hammer Fund in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She's a fierce advocate for reproductive rights and a champion for women and pregnant people across the South. Today, we are re-releasing that conversation, and we hope it will inspire you to join in the fight to protect the right to choose. This fight must be taken up by all of us. I, I urge you to show your support for the women and people who will be forced to complete pregnancies to term, even under the most dire circumstances. Show your support by protesting, organizing, and voting. 
Please make your voice heard. Loud. Hi, how, how are you? I'm making it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, we're obviously about to talk about a topic that it's, very, it's difficult for me to really delve too deep. And it's such a heavy topic. And I'll never be pregnant. I'll never have to deal with the weight of some of these decisions that, that women go through. And so... I brought a co-host who can help me, help me navigate and help the listeners navigate this extremely important topic of uh, reproductive health. Hi, Madison. Hello. Hello, Jalen. This is Madison on the production team. And I'm very excited to be talking with Lori today in my research, looking for guests. When I found you, Lori, I was like, this is it. This is exactly who we want to talk to. So very excited. Hi, Lori. Hi, I'm excited to be here. I love podcasts. So like, yeah. I guess let's kick this off. Uh, Lori, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and, and where you grew up and, and all that good stuff. Ooh, let me try to make this really condensed because <laughs> it's a crazy, like it's a story that if I wrote a book, you would think it was fiction because it's <laughs> that absurd. So I was born in Minnesota. My dad is black. My mother is white. I was born in 1978. Duluth, Minnesota was not a very diverse place. It's very, very white. In fact, you may have heard of it uh, mentioned in Trump rallies. He went there quite a bit during Mm. his election (laughs) campaign. He was constantly trying to recruit voters in the Iron Range of Minnesota. He failed. Yay. So like, that's where I grew up in a very, very white area of Minnesota and Wisconsin. Every time I say it, I start saying Minnesota. (laughs) I grew up in a a very religiously fundamentalist family, like my mother's side of the family, specifically my grandparents were um, uh, evangelical fundamentalists. So I grew up like anti-choice, anti-gay marriage, anti-gay people, (laughs) anti-interracial marriage our church was, which was really weird because I was like sitting right there. Um, Hi, I'm right here. (laughs) Um, And my mom's right here. So what y'all trying to say? Yeah, like I just grew up in a very repressive, I would would call it very cult-like. The um, independent fundamentalist Baptist church is very culty. Like I didn't own any pants until I was eight. It was very repressive. Um, and then we left the church and I moved to Indiana, which was like we moved to a, a black area, thankfully. <laughs> I was very, very happy about that. Went to high school there, got pregnant at 16, got married. It's a long story that I'll keep short. Left my husband at 18. We had three kids. I did not excel at birth control for several reasons that include barriers and partners not being honest. And I had Mm. seven kids by the time I was 24. (laughs) I experienced a lot of the same kind of reproductive oppression that I work against now. Um, And during that time, my attitudes on abortion really changed because I found myself needing an abortion and couldn't obtain one. And through that process, I just learned that, you know, like I wasn't different than other people. 
you know, mm-hmm. like I wasn't better than them. I wasn't different than them. I was just in a different situation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, empathy. <laughs> um, right. And then I came to Mississippi to go to school in 2005 and I've been in the South ever since. And now I do reproductive justice work. So, and that's broad based reproductive justice work, not just abortion funding. I mean, I'm most known for abortion funding in the South and working against abortion bans and working for abortion access. But I do work around the right to parent, keeping child protection services out of people's homes when there's no reason for them to be there, helping people have access to food, access to, you know, safe housing, keeping our community safe, working on racial justice issues, birth justice, you know, LGBT rights issues. So we work on a bunch of issues across, you know, intersectional issues. That's on with Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, which I co-founded, and as well as Yellowhammer Fund, which I currently run. So can you explain for us what is reproductive justice and how is it different from the pro-choice movement and from abortion rights? Yeah, so I can really kind of sum that up in pro-choice is a reproductive rights framework. I mean, they're basically interchangeable, right? And reproductive rights is solely focused on abortion, birth control, and access to them, right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about equity. It's just, hey, everyone has access to these and okay, great, right? There's legal access, that's fine. There's no intersections involved. It's just focused on those things. And the the centering of that movement has always been white women and specifically Mm -hmm. a specific kind of white woman. So it's mostly been middle-class, you know, white women who have led that movement, been the center of that movement, their needs, their wants, you know, what is seen as acceptable for them. So one of the examples of how that's worked out is, you know, back in the 70s, right after Roe passed, when in Congress they were fighting to restrict access to federal funding for abortions, you know, white feminists didn't fight back very hard against that. They were Mm -hmm. like, well, it doesn't really matter. So what? Women will still have access to abortions. So what if, you know, Medicaid doesn't pay for it? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, black and brown women were out here saying, wait, it really does matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll be the ones disproportionately affected. Right. And that's where you come to reproductive justice. And reproductive rights is grounded in constitutional, like a constitutional right framework. Right. It's a constitutional mm. right for you to have an abortion. It's a constitutional right for you to have access to birth control. Right. Whereas reproductive justice is rooted in a human rights framework, like a global human rights framework. Right. Based on all these other global human rights frameworks. So reproductive justice, we believe in the right to parent, the right not to parent, the right mm-hmm. to parent children you have in safe and secure communities that are safe from state-sanctioned violence, safe from domestic violence, right? Like just that your basic needs are met and that you have the right to, you know, family planning, you have the right to sex education, you have the right to express yourself sexually and not just be for procreation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have the right to have all of those things honored. Those are human rights, not constitutional rights, human rights. Right, right. Period. And that's yeah. the difference. And then, and then the centering of reproductive justice 
has always been and remains black indigenous people of color and specifically low income mm-hmm. people of color specifically women of color and femmes uh, i guess as we see it right now do black women have bodily autonomy no mm. <laughs> absolutely not like mm. first of all how can you have bodily autonomy in a country that disproportionately locks you up in prison disproportionately tells you what you can and cannot have done for you medically mm-hmm. disproportionately lets you die in childbirth right yeah. yep. right where's your bodily autonomy right mm-hmm. because let's be clear the harshest abortion restrictions in the country are in the southwest and the mm. majority of black people in the country live where mm. in the southwest the most maternal mortality rates in the country are where in the south mm. right right and where do black folks live in the south right we still disproportionately live in the south so they're you know Black women are, are not supported in their decisions to have or, or not to have children. There's no support there from the state at all. No. Mm. Like, here's the thing. I've always said this, um, and I said this even before I had the framework of, like, reproductive justice or the words, you know, like, the academic words mm. to, to frame this. But it's like Black women can't win, mm. right? When we choose to have kids then society is in our ear talking about we're ruining the country how dare we have all these kids why do you Mm -hmm. have kids if you're poor and i'm speaking specifically about low-income black women whether you're married or not Mm. but especially if you're unmarried right Mm. why why are you you know and especially let don't let our child get killed in state-sanctioned violence right by get killed by the police Mm. right oh the shaming of those mothers Right. right. Yeah. So how dare they? But had that same woman had an abortion, then it's, oh my goodness, you're committing black genocide. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How yeah. dare you? Yeah. And then let me just also say, you can't really just voluntarily give up your child for adoption in the black community either. That's not no thing that we do. Okay. Mm. Because communities that have been scarred by genocidal acts, like having our children stolen from us, whether it was through boarding schools or through you know, child protection services, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. That's a scar and a generational trauma that sits in our communities. So asking us to voluntarily give up our children mm-hmm. is not something that's like, you know, rallied around. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Necessarily right. by families and certainly not to know white people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just being blunt. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I read this quote from you in in an article that said, I jokingly like to say we are the only hood feminist-led abortion fund, by which I mean unapologetically hood and black. And I really loved that. So I just wanted to hear from you, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it really wasn't a joke. (laughs) I actually, um, (laughs) I want to actually just give a shout out to Nikki Kendall, who wrote the book Hood Feminism. It's not just a one-off, like there is actual, an actual critique in Lens called Hood Feminism and everyone should right. run out and get her book. But 
when we when I say it, I think a lot like what Mickey Kendall says in her book, which we're we're showing up for the folks that white feminists and and, and even um, a lot of academic feminists, regardless of race, have left behind, right? Mm-hmm. Like we and I've we put this out on social media before. You know, we here for the strippers, you know, the baby mamas, the, you know, I'm serious, like, you know, the mm-hmm. folks who are drug users, you know, the homeless folks, you know, like, uh, honestly, we here for the folks who got, you know, fat baby daddies, like mm-hmm. everybody who you think is not quote unquote appropriate for leadership, or you think isn't, is, you know, quote unquote too ghetto to volunteer or be engaged, or you don't think is actually cares about a politics, guess what? They probably do, but you just never mm-hmm. ask them. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the most engaged people I ever worked with about politics was when I was a, was when I was a dancer, because I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. former sex worker. Like that really informs my work, right? Is that, you know, I used to sit in the club and talk politics with dancers all day. Right. But they could break down stuff better than pundits right i was gonna say because the politics plays out on their bodies you know exactly it's not something that's far away it's something that they experience exactly and for me when i talk about hood feminism i'm talking about like when we're out here working this is something that my coworkers and i just talked about in our meeting today at yellowhammer when we're out here fighting and doing programming and stuff it's not because we saw a news story and thought, oh, well, that'd be cool to do. Or we went to school and learned about oppression and we were like, oh, that sounds like a cool project. We could go save somebody in, you know, in some part of the <laughs> part of the country. We're fighting for our own lives. We're mm. fighting for our own people. We're fighting for our own sisters. We're fighting for our own kids. We're fighting for us. You know, we're fighting for our housing for ourselves and our neighbors. Like, it's, mm-hmm. this is personal for us. Kind of like the way that the world kind of is approaching abortion and reproductive rights mm-hmm. today and the spot where we are right now. Do you think young people, the new voters, care about these issues in the same way as people a bit older, maybe like 30 and up? Do you think they care about uh, abortion and abortion rights the same way that older generations do? Yes, I actually think they care more. Mm. than people hmm. give them credit for. If you look at who's leading the abortion funds mm. and the abortion funding movement, it's a lot of young people. Oh, wow. Mm. And aside from me, everyone under me is under 31, mm. like under 35. So like, you know, like ev- my deputy director is 30 and everyone else is 30 and under. So younger folks are still passionate about, about these type of rights. Oh, goodness, yes. That's encouraging. So, I mean, in our board is young and same for the Mississippi fund, like the Mississippi fund is made up of young people. In fact, so my, my daughters co-founded the fund while they were teens. Oh, wow. They're now wow. in their twenties and they've taken over the fund and it's them and their friends that are really running the fund now. Wow. And they're all in their twenties. That's cool. And the other people that are helping them are all in their thirties. So I feel like, I feel like people think that they're not engaged. It's kind of like what I was saying earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Are people not engaged or are you just not talking to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Because if all you did was put out a Facebook invite to something, but you didn't engage with any of the communities you wanted to show up, mm-hmm. or you didn't have any credible people pushing that mes- message out, 
to the other communities that are not your own bubble. Well, of course you didn't get the people that you thought you wanted to get. You understand I, what I'm saying? I, I do. I actually, I, I think of like, you know, when anything related to abortion rights comes up and all the pundits, they're all like older people. Yep. And so <laughs> I was just, Madison and I were talking about this and I was like, do you think younger folks care about this? And I, I think that's really encouraging that they do. And not only are they engaged, but they're leading it. Not only are they engaged, but like I'm waiting for the media to move away from, I mean, yes, the stories of abortions pre-row are important, mm. but we have abortion storytellers all the way from people who are in their seventies and eighties, mm. all the way to people who are teens. Mm. Right. So I'm talking about people who have gone through trainings to be prepared. I'm talking about emotionally to tell their story. I mean, mm. like people don't prep their story. Mm. It's just mm. that like we make sure that they're prepared for like the blowback that they could get. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, to tell like, it in a way that makes them feel safe. Exactly. And to train them in me being media savvy so they know how to put things on the record, off the record, background, mm. that kind of stuff. Right. And so you know, we testify has people that are already trained to do that. And most of them are, I mean, a lot of them are young. We have some in Mississippi, they're both in their twenties, right? I mean, I just think it's so interesting that I like everyone I know in the movement is young. <laughs> I started to really care when I was confronted with it myself. Same. When, you know, and so I wonder too, when we talk about young people versus old people, maybe that's kind of the wrong distinction. It's really, has this confronted your life or is this still yeah. something kind of out there and theoretical? Well, there's also the power of knowing other people's abortion stories, mm. right? Like I think for my children, it was important for them to hear the fact that like I almost died in a Catholic hospital because they wouldn't give me an abortion while I was miscarrying, like they just wouldn't finish my miscarriage because to them that was an abortion because there was a heartbeat, you know what I'm saying, in the embryo. A non-progressing pregnancy, right, was more important to them than just giving me a DNC. And right. they sent me home and I almost hemorrhaged to death. So like for my children, that's a story that sits with them, right? Like I think it's important for other teens to hear about why teenagers have abortions right and one of the yeah. things that i stress to people now about my daughter who's been public about her abortion she's been very public about the fact that like those two abortions made her a good mom does that make sense like if she had been a mom in her teens i don't think she'd be as good of a mom as she is now right like i can't i couldn't have seen her as a mom at 15. her mental health wasn't there you know, our finances as a family wasn't there. It mm -hmm. just wasn't that time. And there's no shame in saying, like people would be, people would be down on her if she had had two kids as a, as a teenager, right? Mm -hmm. They would talk all kind of crap about her and our family, but yet they talk crap because she had two abortions and now is a stable and good parent. It right. goes back to right. that thing you're saying, black women can't win. Right, exactly. Mm. What is your relationship like with your kids? Oh, all my kids still live with me. All of them. <laughs> yeah, all and of them. there's seven, right? There's seven of them plus a grandbaby and I have a bonus kid. And not just him, like, let me be clear. 
his mom and his grandma are part of our family. Like, mm. you know, when, when he became part of our family, so did his mother and, um, and so did his grandma because for him to be okay, they have to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like we don't, to me, that's part of my work. Like you can't, that's one of my critiques of the department of family and children. Like you can't just take a child and be like, Oh, well we've taken the child now and they're okay. And then separate mm-hmm. them from their family and their roots and say whatever happens to their family doesn't matter because mm-hmm. one day the kid's going to wonder what happened to their family. Right. Do you, is that ludicrous. a part of reproductive justice? Do you think? Of course. Yeah. First of all, keeping families together is part of reproductive justice because mm-hmm. yes. you have the right to raise your children, right? You have the right to raise your biological children. Mm-hmm. Like his mom is still his mom to me. Uh-huh. I'm not his mom. I'm Lori. Right. If his mom wants to see him, we bring him to see him or see her. Mm-hmm. Right. She's just going through some stuff and she needs mm-hmm. some help. So in the pro-choice movement, as opposed to reproductive justice, I think there is really an emphasis on people not having a baby. Right. Yep. Poor women so. who are expected to have an abortion because they're mm-hmm. poor. Teen moms expected to have an abortion because they are teens. And that's really part of what, a big part of what reproductive justice is. It's moving away from saying you need to have an abortion because you don't fit into our narrative of what a mother is and should be and says, you know, we trust you where you are, who you are to make a decision for your life. Exactly. I don't make decisions for people. I give people space to make decisions for themselves. I don't do any of that. I give them options and space to hold, you know, I hold space for people Mm -hmm. to make their own decisions. I hold space for people to tell their stories. um, And I hold their stories. Yeah. Um, I think that's some of the most important work that we do is like, yes, we fund things and yes, we give people money and all of that's great. And yes, that is life-saving and that is amazing. And honestly, I've said before that People will say you shouldn't throw money at a problem, but sometimes the best way to solve a problem is to throw money at it. So throw that fucking money at it. That's (laughs) literally, honestly, throw the money. But also it's important to hold space for people to listen to them, to empathize with them, to give them a a safe, confidential space to talk because mental health is crap in this country. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people (laughs) don't have anywhere to talk to people. You know, I have people who have held abortion stories for 20 and 30 years that randomly come up to me at places and tell me their story. When they find out what I do, I mean, I'm talking about, I'll be at places that I'm not doing anything related to abortion. Is that hard or, you know, like that people are kind of spilling out or emotionally on you? I think it would be harder for me if I hadn't went to school for human services. (laughs) Okay. Uh Thankfully. And so um, I was trained to have, you know, a way to let go of that have a way to process that stuff some of those stories sit with you longer than others for me a lot of times it's teens and young moms and I think that's just because I was a young mom Mm. and so it's you know in dv cases a lot of times sit with me too when I'm on the call line because I still do the call line for mrff even though I'm the ed of yellowhammer (laughs) (laughs) I, I occasionally work the call line and some of those stories hit with me but overall it's I don't mind like if it just to just so if any listeners are ever in Alabama and want to tell me a story I will listen and it's okay you're not harming me 
<laughs> like I'm happy to sit and listen to people's stories. It's, I mean, like I don't, I don't mind if I if I don't have the capacity to hear something, I'll let people know and tell them I need mm. to talk to them at another time. But overall, it, to me, it's my it's my honor to be trusted that way. I was watching last night Corey Bush and Pamela Jalapal and Barbara Lee talk about their abortions on MSNBC. Mm. Mm. And I could just see how emotional Cori Bush was. I hadn't read her whole story till today. When I tell you as an abortion doula, I wanted to jump through the the, the screen and hug her. Mm. Like that's just like, to me, like that feeling is just what abortion doula work is like, right? It's like, you're just so intensely listening to folks and you're just ready to do whatever they need. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a caring profession. It's just a caring you either are an abortion doula or a doula in general, or yay. On the subject of abortion stories um, and, and sharing those stories, there was an article about you and your work, a Mother Jones article, that's called uh, When Choice is 221 Miles Away, The Nightmare of Getting an Abortion in the South. And it details the struggle of a young Mississippi woman who goes to find an abortion provider and she just really goes through hell. Um, mm -hmm. She gets lured to one of these, quote, crisis pregnancy centers. She has promised funds pulled out from underneath her. She's driving state by state to find a clinic. She even had her tires slashed. Mm -hmm. Is this what women are going through? Is this like row America? Yeah. I mean, her, I think people thought, oh my goodness, that's really extreme. Like people aren't really going through that, but I was just telling someone the other day, like, I don't think people understand how much intimate partner violence and domestic violence impacts the work that we do. Mm. Like in the case of that person, there was more than that that went on between her mm. and her former partner with him intimidating and or stalling her abortion that I can't divulge. But mm. there are so many cases. I mean, not by, not by far, it's not all, but it's a good proportion that are somehow impacted by a form of domestic violence, either mm. financial exploitation or, you know, physical, emotional, a lot of, a lot of people who got pregnant via stealthing. So, mm. you know, their partner slipped the condom off or reproductive coercion in another way where their partner like stole their, you know, took their birth control pills and wouldn't give them back to them. You know, so like there's quite a bit of people trying to get someone pregnant, like to keep them around. One case I'll never forget was um, this fairly young mom came home, like she had told her partner that she didn't think she wanted to stay pregnant. And she came home and he had killed her daughter's dog. Oh, gosh. You know, there are partners that'll just like take the car and not let the person have the car. Like mm. we have people that we literally have to almost like smuggle out of their houses, like come up with excuses, you know, like get their friend to, to bring them and like come up with a whole elaborate story. Let me just throw this out there because I know this might may or may not be a question y'all have, but this is why self-managed abortion is so important. It's one of the reasons people always talk about, oh, okay, people can't get to clinics because of the distance or the cost or whatever. But there's also people who literally can't leave their house. Yeah. And not just because of domestic violence or location, but also disability. And all of those people deserve access to abortion. And so honestly, what you're talking about there is medical, like medication abortion, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Where you order it offline. That's why it's called self-managed. And one of the things right. that I keep stressing to people is I don't know why the government or anti-choicers think if Roe falls, they're gonna get they're gonna discourage Zoomers from ordering pills online mm. <laughs> to do an abortion. They're already ordering pills online. Like this is the generation that's been ordering, like this right. is the whole generation that we raised on pills. Literally. And the we, internet. <laughs> we raised them on pills and the internet. You think that they're scared? to order some pills off the internet no right they're just not, which doesn't like, make that necessarily safe we want that to be no. safe and right. that's why you have but, that's why you have groups like plan c who are vetting sites can you there tell are, more talk more about that yeah so plan c is a um is a group that's like you know they put up sites that are that they've already vetted are safe you know to use to get to have safe product right that mm -hmm. you can you can um buy from and then of course there's aid access which is a legitimate doctor from one of those countries like the netherlands and then mm. they they ship it from an indian pharmacy that's legitimate okay so there's a couple of there's a couple of groups that are trying to make sure that you know if you choose to do that you do it safely right and then so during covid they made those pills those self at home abortion pills available through the mail but is that then nationwide <laughs> or in a place like mississippi that that doesn't count it counts but like there's also like more steps that then the clinic has to go through with the state and then that depends on whether or not the clinic wants to do that i don't okay. think that the clinic in mississippi has done that i know that the clinic in tuscaloosa that yellowhammer owns has now has done it and so now people can go to the clinic in Tuscaloosa with one visit, just their, their informed consent visit, go uh -huh. home, and then their pills will be mailed to them okay. if they live in Alabama, but they have to live in the state. Which is not what's happening with abortion in America in the South right now, right? People are moving uh, no. across state lines. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like, it's helpful for people, but here's how that helps, though. It does help because if you can get people in Alabama or at last at least a lot of the people in Alabama to one appointment right because you know that medical abortion is about 40 percent of people get medical abortion if you mm. can get those people down to one appointment then that frees up your schedule for more people on that day mm -hmm. that you would have had to do those second appointments you see what I'm saying mm -hmm. so like that is helpful and then there are other there's there are some other workarounds at least in Alabama like some states have workarounds around informed consent where you can do it on the phone or you can get mailed a packet and that starts your 48 hours and then you only have to go once. But the thing about it with abortion care in the South or anywhere is you have to know all these rules. Right. Right. And you have to be working with a clinic that's going to tell you all these rules. And some clinics are really <laughs> good at communicating the rules and some aren't. And yeah, it's just, it's a maze. Yeah. I mean, if you've got to smuggle someone out of their house, that's a lot easier to do once than it is to do twice. Exactly. And I mean, is it is it every state in America that requires the 24 hour? Nope. It's not all the states. Nope. Okay. No, okay. No, because New York weird. doesn't do it. I know Cali doesn't do it. A lot of the more liberal states don't do it. It's not every state that doesn't pay with Medicaid. So it's federal mm -hmm. dollars that can't go to Medicaid. But if your state Medicaid dollars want to go for Medicaid, you can do it. So like Cali pays with Medicaid, pays with you know, Medicaid pays for it. New York's mm. Medicaid pays for abortion. 
what's the other one like uh massachusetts does and like if you're in one of those states and they also have medicaid expansion oh you're probably your abortion is probably paid for but those, mm. those places still have abortion funds because guess what you might have regular insurance and your regular insurance doesn't pay for abortion mm -hmm. because that's the right. other thing lawmakers have worked really hard to do right is get private insurers not to cover abortion so if you have private insurance and you need abortion you might still need money and if you have a later term abortion which are extremely expensive you will probably need help unless you have a lot of money in savings right so what you're talking about with federal funding or with state funding that has to do with the Hyde amend Amendment, right? Correct. Can you just explain for our listeners, just very quickly, what is the Hyde Amendment and why is it bad? Yes. So the Hyde <laughs> Amendment is a travesty enacted by Henry Hyde. You forget him, a man who was like so disgusting that he said, I'm paraphrasing, that he would love to, you know, make it so no one could hit an abortion. But since he only had power over Medicaid, he would settle for making it so poor women couldn't access abortions easily. You can look the quote up, but he basically said that. And so originally it just banned funding for Medicaid. But as the years went on, it became that it could ban all federal funds for abortion. So that means no one in the military can get an abortion with their health care. No one mm. in the Coast Guard, no one in the Peace Corps, no one who's a federal employee, no one on Medicaid, no one on Medicare, which I want to mm. highlight that Medicare is not just for older people. Medicare is also for younger disabled people. Mm. Right? That's super a lot of important. people go, oh, no one on Medicare would need an abortion. Oh, wouldn't they? Mm. Right? Because also a lot of, you know, disabled people are more likely to be sexually assaulted. Right. Right. Let's just put that out there. So it bans any federal money. After Heidemann was passed, a lot of states copied it on the state level. And so then they made it so no state money could go for abortion. Mm. And then to make it even worse, then when they made the state exchanges for the ACA, they banned abortion coverage in the ACA exchanges. So like Alabama, Mississippi, you cannot get abortion coverage in your regular ACA coverage, you have to buy a separate rider. That yep. you pay for then monthly? Separately, yep. Oh Just boy. in case you need an abortion. Right, right. Yep. Goodness. I can't even count the number of callers over the last eight years that have said to me, I thought I'd be able to use my insurance. I have really good insurance. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, nope. And I always mm. feel bad for military members who didn't realize TRICARE doesn't pay for it. Imagine serving the military for like 12 years. You've been sexually assaulted by someone in command. Mm. Now you're pregnant and the military won't even pay for your damn abortion. Also put it out there that like there's all those military bases in Guam. And at mm. one point there was no abortion provider in Guam. The last one had left. There were none there. That's an island. Yeah. Now you're getting on boats and airplanes. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And this is a post-row America. Like, it's supposed to be accessible. Yeah. So you're supposed to have, like, you know, access. Right. So this is what I need people to understand. Legal access doesn't mean equitable yeah. access. And that what they should be wary of coming down the pike is that, like, this Texas ban. 
is literally written so that Roe would be on the books and legal, but essentially gone. Mm-hmm. Right? What is abortion access if it's only six weeks? I mean, come on now. Anyone who's even watched a pregnancy test commercial knows they'll be like, oh, we can detect your pregnancy as early as three weeks. Okay. Mm. So now I got three weeks to get my abortion. That means taking off work, possibly getting childcare, depending on who I am. Driving to whatever abortion clinic I have to go to twice. Mm-hmm. What's been happening to people in Texas is like they'll go for their first appointment and there's no heartbeat, which is not a real heartbeat anyways. It's just fetal pole activity. There's mm. no electrical activity in the embryo. And then they go to the second one and there is. So guess what? They can't have their abortion now. Too late. And they're only six weeks. Like, Right. That is so early. I think people really don't have an understanding of how early that is and how much time it takes to schedule an abortion, to get there, to take two days off of work. And even, you know, somebody might need some time to process, need some time to think about it, need some time to make a decision, need some time to talk to their partner. You know. And if you're a minor and you need a judicial bypass, you see where I'm going here? Like, mm-hmm. there's just a lot. I mean, what if you're locked up? What if you're yeah. in detention? What if your cycles don't come regularly? Yeah. You know how many people we've funded who were like, oh, I got to be only about like seven weeks, you know, but my cycles aren't really regular. We get them to the clinic. Mm-hmm. They're 15, 16 weeks already. Mm-hmm. We had one person who thought she was like seven weeks. We get her to the clinic. She's 21 weeks already. Wow. And the worst cases that are usually like that are young people because they generally don't really understand counting their periods yet or anything. Right. Or a lot of times they're victims of sexual violence. And so like we had one case where a young woman, her mom didn't even know she had been a victim of long-term sexual violence by a family member until like it came out and then the police were investigating and during the investigation they pregnancy tested her she didn't know she was pregnant got her to the clinic she was already 22 weeks wow so now we got to send her out of state but she was only 13 oh my goodness that's so young and the thing that really irritates me about anti-abortion people is they'd be like oh well that's a blessing you know but i'm like that's a child why don't you have any compassion for that living, breathing child? Right. For Why would you want years. a child to go through a pregnancy, even if they gave that child up for adoption? Why would you want a living, breathing child to go through that? Physically. Physically, she could be damaged for life. Right. My body was never the same. Right. Honestly, because yeah, I, I mean, had twins. so young, you're not done with puberty. At 13, yeah. you maybe haven't really even started. You've just started. Listen, my doctors kept warning me, and I didn't really think they were serious, but they were serious, that if I didn't up my calcium levels while I was pregnant, I was going to have problems with my bones because my bones were still growing. And if you Mm. don't ingest enough calcium, your babies will leach calcium from your body. Mm. Right? Yeah, I was sick while I was pregnant. I mean, I was sick. I had twins when I was 16. It was not easy. It was really, really rough. Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, like, my body is permanently damaged from having kids back-to-back in my 20s. One star, do not recommend. (laughs) Like, honestly, it's very, very, very much not the mood. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, the kids are great. I love them. They're amazing humans, but the experience right. was trash. <laughs> Do not recommend. Oh, well, the pregnancies and the deliveries were mm-mm. no. Uh-huh. No, nope, I can't nope. imagine. I mean, I'm a mom. I'm 31. I can't imagine going through all of that as a teenager. I mean, being pregnant, it's so time consuming. It's so time consuming physically for, you know, okay, I got to do this. I got to take these vitamins. I got to go to the doctor. I got to, you know, make sure I'm getting the right nutrients and blah, blah, blah. And then it's so time consuming mentally. And yeah. And when you're a teenager, when you're a young person, you don't have that space and capacity. Maybe some people do, and that's not to knock teen moms who say, you know, like, I'm ready. I'm happy to do it. And I want to do it. But I think for most people, it's like, no, I don't have the capacity for that. I'm still learning to be myself. You know, I'm still figuring out who am I and my body is still figuring out what is it going to look like when it's grown and, you know, how's it going to work? And so to do something so big, to do something so huge physically in your body is too much. Yeah. Like I literally will support any team that wants to carry their pregnancy to term. And I mean, I will get them the best healthcare that I can get them. Mm-hmm. Look, I'll even be their doula. I absolutely do not regret my decision to have my twins. But I think that when we tell people, especially when we tell young people, you know, what they should expect when they stay pregnant, mm-hmm. we should be <laughs> definitely honest with them instead of being like, everything will be great. And we're going to give you diapers every week. You know, like this lollipops, rainbows and sprinkles thing right. that the CPCs do to me is so dishonest and so rude. And I would never sell my kids a fairy tale about abortion or parenting. Parenting Mm -hmm. is hard. Abortion is surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're going to have feelings or you have feelings about any surgery. Hell, I had feelings about my tonsillectomy. Like, I mean, you have Mm. feelings about anything you do and especially this because it's involving potential life. It's a big decision, but it's your decision. Mm -hmm. But I just think like, especially when you're talking about young teens under 14, for me, this is me and Lori saying it, not the movement, not nobody else. (laughs) I think when you're talking about 13 and under, parents should be generally leading that conversation unless they're like abusive parents or whatever. It's hard to figure out. Yeah, because honestly, I believe that child has autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. But I also don't feel like a 12-year-old body you know, like, I feel like there's a health risk in there. Yes. And that's a child. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think 12 and 16 are the same thing. And right. That's just my mom hat and not my reproductive rights worker hat. <laughs> I mean, 12, 13, that's just so incredibly young. It's so young. I would never force anybody, but I do understand why there's parents that would like, you know, nudge their child towards dying. Right. I mean, but there are factors at play if a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old is pregnant, right? Oh, God, yes. Mm. But let me just say, in Mississippi, more parents nudge their teens towards parenting. And nobody thinks that's weird. Mm. People will complain about teen parenting all day long, but they don't think it's weird that parents nudge their teens towards parenting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I think, especially, let me just get this out, when most of the teens who are pregnant are pregnant by grown men who technically statutorily rape them. Right. Right. So they're pregnant by rapists. Yep. 
I'm not sure why you would be pushing for your child to have a rapist baby. Mm-hmm. Now, if she wants to, that's different. But I right. don't know why you would be pushing for it. It's mm-hmm. such a weird, antiquated thing. Because I come across so many people who are literally co-parenting with the guy who raped them when they were 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In their 20s now. It's so interesting to hear you say that I live in Southern Africa and I used to live in rural Eswatini, what was formerly known as Swaziland. And that was the sentiment there in that community. Well, first of all, the relationships were almost always, you know, with those age gaps, young girls and older men, girls in high school and men in their 20s and early 30s. And there was this pressure that a baby is a blessing and you should parent that baby and have that baby and people raising children or raising children on their own because those men were not around anymore. You know, it was a lot to take in. And I'm from the Northeast. I'm from the city, you know, so I'm not from the South. I don't know the South at all. So it's interesting to hear you say that because it's like, wow, I don't think I realized where the culture was, where that existed in the United States in the same way. And maybe I'm just naive. Oh, no, it does. It's not just the South. I think it's more of a Christian culture thing. Mm, I think it's more of a definitely conservative Christian thing. And it's not just a white thing. It's definitely just a Christian-y thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know for my ex-husband and I, you know, he was 19. We got married. I was 16. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, the first thing that we both said is we've got to get married. No one even had to say it to us. This is what Mm. I want to point out. No one Mm. even had to say it to us. Like, that's how indoctrinated we were. He was raised strict Pentecostal. I was raised strict Baptist. We felt like to be able to be successful parents and for our kids' souls not to be (laughs) damned to hell, Mm. we had to get right by God and get married. Mm. And honestly, that's literally what it was. And the church that he grew up in would not even marry us if I wore white for our wedding. So I'm wearing oh boy. <laughs> this bright pink dress at our wedding that I did not even freaking want to wear. I look like a weird Southern belle because it's not my dress. I got it from his cousin. It was a pretty dress, but it's not what I would have picked to wear. I look like teen marriage Barbie. That's what I look like. <laughs> you know, at the time I thought I looked so grown up, but I look so young. I look like a mm. baby. Mm. And the fact that nobody told us, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. I don't think y'all should get married. Maybe y'all should just co-parent for a while and see what happens. No, everybody thought it was the greatest idea. You know, everybody acted like it was just the best thing. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) And I wasn't even the only married girl at my school. At 16. Oh, in Indiana. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) There was another girl who was married. And the same year that I had twins, there was a girl that had triplets. Oh, boy. That's just too many extra babies, you know? (laughs) Like, I'm going to do the pregnancy thing. Oh, now you get two? Oh, now you get three? Like, no, 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 no. There was actually this white girl in my school who had three kids by her junior year. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yep. What is the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund? What do you do exactly? And how can women who are experiencing this hardship get in touch with you? Okay, so the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund was founded in 2013, originally as a line item in the Mississippi Now budget. 
and we just funded abortions and we gave out plan B. And since then we have grown. Our intentions were always to grow as a broader based reproductive justice organization that funded abortions. So our object was never just be an abortion fund. So what do we do? We fund abortions. Actually, we're a practical support fund, not so much of an abortion fund. What that means is, is we help people with all the things outside of their abortion that helps them get to their abortion or helps them access their abortion. And one of the things that's different about Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund is that we put cash in people's hands or we give them gift cards like for their gas or whatever to get to their appointments. They might have taken their bill money for their appointment. And so then we pay for their bill. Does that make sense? Beyond that, we have a diaper closet. We have a period supply closet. We have a little free pantry. We have a little free library. We own some property. We have not started our community farm yet. We have another house that we're working on to make it into emergency housing. Originally, that wasn't our plan, but that's where we've pivoted since COVID. We have a property that we call the Fun Shack. It's where our free library is and our free pantry and our lending library that is not currently available because of COVID. That's the property we bought in 2017 with our Trump bucks. Yay. Thanks, Donald. And (laughs) it is painted purple with turquoise trim. People can't miss it. It's right across from Jim Hill High School in Jackson, Mississippi. And if people want to find us, they can go to MS reprofreedomfund.org we'll make sure we put that into the description as well thank you yeah for sure and does your fund fund only work in mississippi because there's only one abortion clinic in mississippi right now and then in the anecdote you spoke about in hawaii you guys can help folks that are outside of mississippi yeah because she was a mississippian oh so I co-founded the Mississippi Fund in 2013. I've been running the Yellowhammer Fund for a year now. Mm. I helped them found the Yellowhammer Fund. Like the Yellowhammer Fund was founded in the image of Mississippi's fund. Okay. So is the Mississippi one only for Mississippians and Yellowhammer only for Alabamans? No. This is how we're doing it right now. So Mississippi and Alabama are in a partnership right now. Oh. And what we're doing is everybody from Mississippi and Alabama can call Yellowhammer for direct funding to a clinic. Uh And everybody from Mississippi and Alabama can call Mississippi's fund for practical support funding. Okay. But it is just for those states. Correct. Unless Mm. we have extra funding available. But that Mm. means if you're coming to those states too. Mm. Not just if you live in those states. Mm. But I'll be honest, a lot of our funding goes to people who are going outside the state. The Mississippi Fund actually doesn't fund a whole lot at the towards the clinic in Jackson. Mm. I mean, we do fund towards the clinic in Jackson, including giving people directly money to pay for their bill. Mm. But what we do fund more is people who have to go out of state, who have so, like $2,000 to pay for their procedure. So there's one clinic in Mississippi. How many are in Alabama? There's three independent clinics and there's two Planned Parenthoods that are sometimes open. Mm. And there's three clinics in Louisiana. Oh. There are wow. clinics. I think wow. there's eight clinics in Georgia. I might be lying. Like there's at least six though. Mm-hmm. There's three that we use in Atlanta. Florida ain't much better. There's really nothing in the panhandle. Florida's got a lot of clinics, but they're all spread out. Like mm-hmm. out of everywhere in the South though, Florida's got the most clinics. Okay. Tennessee ain't got shit. Arkansas has one clinic now. Wow. In Little Rock. 
they might have two. At one point, it was Little Rock family planning and uh, Planned Parenthood was open. But the Planned Parenthood, you couldn't count on for nothing because they only did a medical abortion. Wow. And this is probably like, I don't know how easy it is to even answer this question, but I tend to like to end these interviews asking for something that makes you optimistic or something that you're hopeful for. Is there anything in this space that gives you optimism or hope? I'm always optimistic. There we go. Listen, the organizing and resilience of women of color always makes me hopeful. Mm. Not because I feel like we should have to keep doing this struggle. I don't. I feel like we should be able to go on a long, long sabbatical that Mm. is paid for and pampered. But I just know that, you know, there's some really dope organizing going on in the South. That could only be done in the South, that is done in a fearless way, that is so absolutely Southern and unapologetic. I definitely want to end this with a thank you. Thank you for what you do for women, for using what's given to you to create a safe, welcoming, inclusive base for mothers and for scared women and girls and queer people and folks who had you know the strength to tell you their stories and deposit that with you for you know standing up for the most marginalized folks folks seeking abortions and you know that can be such a scary and alienating process and i can imagine there's nothing like a mom to a young baby i'm sure it's the most wonderful and simultaneously the most difficult thing to do in your life especially in a society that's not offering much support in either scenario So thank you for stepping up and being the champion of reproductive justice. What you do is really special. It's special. It's necessary. Mississippi, Alabama, and the world, and the U.S., you know, we're all better for having you. I'm just one drop in a big old bucket of (laughs) folks. Like, you know, like, honestly, someone taught me, and I'm teaching others, and, like, I'm just one person that sometimes gets acknowledged, and there's a whole bunch of others holding me up and, you know, I appreciate them. People like Michelle Cologne and Valencia Robinson and Monica at Sister Song. And I've learned from all kinds of people, you know, Sharice at Sister Reach, just, you know, my homies keeping me together. You guys are doing the Lord's work. I say that all the time. I call it goddess work (laughs) okay? because I feel like Mm. it is deeply connected to like feminine and masculine energy, but I'll honestly say I never feel more connected to like the ancestors and spirit than when I'm helping someone in the birthing space, like whether it's being Mm. an abortion doula or a birth doula or a loss doula or whatever. To me, that's like work deeply grounded in spirit and just deep empathy. It's love and energy work, you know? Yeah. 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 This is The Delve. Check out our Instagram, where we would love to continue the conversation with you. Uh, You can find us at The Delve Podcast.